Hello and welcome to Coffee Milk. I'm Mark Laporte. I'm Mitch DiPaolo. And today we have a special guest, Ben Owens, who created StartAHobbyGrow.com. Thanks for having me. What's up, Ben? How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. It's been a busy week in the Hobby Grow. Oh, I can imagine it. What do you got going on? Uh, this week we launched Hobby Hash, which is a free seven-day course that you can sign up for at HobbyHash.com. Uh, it's a crash course on solverless products, so it is 100% free. It's a basic understanding, so it's not going to, you know, you're not going to go from zero to expert in seven days, but you will go and get probably 70% of the stuff it took me three and a half years to learn. So that is, to me, a huge resource, you know, as somebody who makes hash at home, who has transitioned to being very single source oriented, you know, the tool sets are there, the equipment has never been more accessible, and there's no reason that the knowledge and you know the, the supplies as far as the, the information should be withheld so that's kind of the premise of that it's like a 90 plus page ebook uh with full sops to make your own dry sieve dry ice hash water hash air dried machine wash you know kind of cover the full gamut all the way through rosin vapes so interesting yeah so that's like the follow-up to you know like we're in the middle of the grow hort. my grow hort students have just harvested or are harvesting their graduations two weeks from today and then june is the next kickoff so full speed ahead just dropped another magazine behind me and then you know put out two other manuscripts that i'm working with co-authors on so it's never a dull moment over here oh wow so you're even working uh for a magazine too if i'm not mistaken i think i saw it online was it ethos genetics uh yeah it was it's ethos genetics uh, the magazine is the ethos magazine and we are we just put out our fifth issue so very excited about that uh, a lot of good stuff in there and some international coverage got the chance to interview some canadian uh, cannabis influencers as well as some denver locals and some, a seed bank oh wow that's really cool so what like first got you into cannabis in the first place? Um, well, yeah. So as far as I got into cannabis, you know, when I started and I started smoking in 2009, I was first, you know, we all saw dare. We all went through those kinds of programs, but free, you know, less now my first exposure that I recall was freshman year at my high school in North Carolina. I remember the high school paper put out a double op-ed and, you know, one was pro cannabis legalization and one was against and being, you know, a freshman in college, or high school, excuse me, was just taken aback by that. And the logic immediately appealed to me as someone with, you know, rebellious skateboarding kind of tendencies at that age. And I never smoked, but I was, if you went through my iPod, you wouldn't have known that. And so then, you know, when I went off to college, I had the opportunity and that was, that was my introduction. I, you know, we were smoking grams and half eighths and trying to salvage what we could to spread it out through the week to get us through the weekend so wait how old are you i am 32 i love how you had to do that quick math i know i'm like uh the quick math is it's august so uh, 31 actually oh wow so i moved out here in 2015 and have since you know i was in colorado or i was in chicago before colorado and then i went to school in missouri so that was Missouri was where I was introduced to cannabis, and it's cool that it's 2023 because statute of limitations, I graduated in 2013, so most of the things we would ever talk about would happen before then. It's it's funny, though. I mean, it's something that really comes up as a writer. You know, I've worked in ad agencies. I've worked in newspapers and things like that, and you want to tell these stories. There's so many colorful stories that haven't been told in the space, and unlike other spaces, the reason they haven't been told is because many of these people 
aren't past that limit where if they say something, they could potentially incriminate themselves. And so there's so many stories that in five, 10, 15 years, when it's fully been legal and it's been legal long enough that everyone can talk about the other stuff, the stories are going to be un- unreal. <laughs> yeah. And cannabis, it's kind of like the industry is in almost like a gray zone transition area. So back in the day, if you said anything about cannabis, it wasn't really good. It was kind of like everything was like kind of hidden. Um, they didn't they didn't really talk about it in public. So now that it, this everything is like being pushed, all these dispensaries are coming out and these and these laws are being passed. It's really a uh, a great space to be. Yeah, you know, it's it's a interesting space for sure. Like you said, like it's kind of a gray period as far as transitioning from the legacy market to the legal market. We have now a medical or some sort of recreational access in 38 plus states with Kentucky now on the board. So that's exciting. But as I was telling somebody else on Twitter this the other day that only half of those states allow you to grow your own. So when you talk to your casual consumer or your casual non-consumer, I talked to my parents, they don't understand why if, well, medical or if it's adult use, we don't even get it. Why can't they grow? Well, because explicitly it's still a felony. And that doesn't make sense conceptually. Like, well, it's legal. You should be able to grow anywhere. So that's its own challenge. You know, this transition, this arc that we're on is is definitely an expedited version of alcohol. So I think that that's, you know, everybody hates the alcohol comparison, but we have tobacco and we have alcohol as our regulated vice markets to look at for historical context. And if we're looking at alcohol, I mean, most people are growing their own tobacco, but there are there is a craft brewing, there is a home brewing microbrew scene and it took a hundred years for that to be legal in all 50 states. So, you know, if we're looking at that timeline, it makes a lot of sense. It's unfortunate, but it makes a lot of sense that we're going through these literal growing pains of not being able to cultivate as we work through kind of these nuances of these new laws. And I think not being able to let everyone grow kind of keeps the market there because we just legalized it in Rhode Island, I believe November 1st or maybe December. And the prices from Massachusetts are, are coming down. So we, I, when I lived in Chicago, um, there was a company or not a company, but there was an outfit that that offered delivery, and it was it was so mind blowing to me at the time. But we used to get one milliliter vapes; they're one hundred twenty five dollars each. And at the time, I mean, this is twenty fourteen. They. Like it was just so unbelievably expensive and you're living in downtown Chicago and there's a budget and an audience and whatever. But I quickly through Googling and Reddit figured out that you can buy terpenes on the internet and you can put them with your shatter and make vape cartridges. And we were, I started making my own vapes simply as like uh, cool, this is a DIY experiment. Not like I never, I don't think I ever even sold one, but like it was for me, like I was at a point and in my career and my relationships and everything where vaping was a way for me to discreetly consume. So if I could make my own, save the money. And then when I first hit those vapes and was like, wow, I only put 30% terpenes in this and this knocks me on my ass compared to what I'm buying from this guy, whatever he's doing to his carts. And this, you know, pre-legal, we have no idea what was in those cartridges. Um, but it was just, it was like, wow. Okay. So I get twice as much of a hit and I'm paying half as much. Like I'm just going to make these myself. (laughs) So I'm looking at your website and I see the, the newsletter, Yes. And then the requirements for the um, the hobby grow, which is awesome. What what started first? Yeah. So the grow war was kind of where this started. Like, let me turn off 
don't know what's going on here. Sorry well, good. about that. Um, so when so basically six months ago, I have a good friend from college who is also you know a member of my groom's party for my wedding, and he's just a good buddy of mine. His name is Nicholas Cole. He goes by Cole online. He's a writer. He's a ghost writer. He's done a lot of these things. And so one of the projects he's involved in is called Ship 30. And I've watched him and Dickie. Dickie's his partner. Dickie actually created it. Cole signed on later. Um, I watched them from afar for a while on Twitter, kind of doing these creations and finally pulled the trigger and jumped on board. My fiance and I both decided to do it. And we did that in October. And I will tell you that in 30 days, like... I don't want to say my entire world changed because I've kind of been on this trajectory, but my trajectory catapulted forward. You know, I went 30 days, obviously writing, but through that really dialed in on, you know, okay, it's not just like I'm growing and this is fun and, you know, I do it for a passion, but there are other people like that out there that have real jobs. And I say real loosely, you know, it's kind of a slam to some people, but in the traditional sense of the word, when my mom says, man, I wish you would get a real job. That's a nine to five that pays salary on a W-2 and has nothing to do with wheat, you know, for the sake of this right. conversation. So for people who fit that bucket that just want to grow for fun because they either smoke a lot of weed or they just moved to a legal state and they're like, this is really cool. I don't want to blow out my basement. I don't need 10 lights. I don't want to grow at scale. I want to grow enough to share with my buddy at Christmas or whatever. And so that is where I started. I started in a two by two by four tent in my closet for funsies. You know, it was like not about making money and it, it never has been like my sister regularly is like, how come you don't sell any of this? Like you're spending all this money. And I'm like, well, because I haven't grown enough to like fully satiate my own consumption. That's number one. And two, like I'm not doing it on a scale where I'm trying to produce excess. Like I'm trying to produce enough for my fiance and I to consume without having to go to the dispensary. And then we harvest and we repeat the process. You know, it's now, do I love sharing with other growers and people? Absolutely. But it's sharing it quite literally. Like I would rather trade with a grower. You're more likely to get to try my weed if you've yep. got weed. Because it, like I would rather try new weed than buy weed, you know, and that's the fastest way to do it. So that's where the grow horde started was like, okay, if they can do this for writing online in 30 days, how could I do this for growing? Because the biggest barriers are obviously cost, you know, overwhelming amount of information. People feel like there's this huge time commitment. And if you can get past all that, it's a four month commitment from start to finish. Typically, if you're growing, you know, a normal seed, because you've got to get it six weeks or so into, into the state where it's actually producing the hormones required for flowering. So, and then you've got eight to 10 weeks from there and so on and so forth. So it becomes quite the commitment if you're hesitant and if you are hesitant and it, you know, you don't want to spend a bunch of money and waste it. You don't want to buy the wrong things. You don't, you know, there's, if you get on the internet, there's a million people that'll tell you how to do it or you're doing it wrong or try something else. And you can just like, I went through this. I, I spent lots of money on things I didn't need to. And so I was like, okay, let's pull all of the levers. Let's see how simple can we make this? Like, let's take this vehicle. Let's go from that to a motorcycle. Let's go from that to a tricycle. Like how can we put training wheels on this thing and get you from start to finish as fast as possible? And so with the development in autoflower breeding, autoflowers have been around forever, but they are coming along at a lot faster rate because breeders are starting to focus on them. One of the advantages is that some of those are fast flowering. So you can go from seed to harvest in 70, 80 days. And 
that immediately was like, okay, you don't have to worry about changing your lights. So there's no complications there. Like I can teach about lighting, but you don't have, if you screw it up, it's not going to screw up your harvest. So that's the auto flower. And then on top of that, because it is an auto flower, it does certain things that you would maybe have to train or guide a, a photo period plant for similar results. So it was like, let me find a plant that works well, that finishes fast, something that can be grown in the two by two by four space that I started in, get people to spend a little extra bucks on the light and buy everything else pretty much as, you know, a basic model you can get and then create a nutrient program or not create, but find, I found this this situation called grow dots by real growers. It's a very cheap way to get started or a very affordable way to get started. It's like $8 a plant essentially. And you amend the soil once and that's it. It's just add water from there on. Now, if your pH is way off, you do have to do some adjustments and things like that. Um, I have them adding a microbial, which is TerraGrow from BioSafe. That is, there's a variety of reasons that I'm doing that, but it, it basically kind of buffers for any sort of new error in what they're doing. Like there's a lot of benefits to it, but the reason we're using it is for that kind of buffer. With that said, two of the three have already harvested. One of them replanted. Um, he is now a few days away from chopping. We're all going to do our first tastes on 420. That was also oh, part of the pitch great. was like, start your new year with a new hobby, smoke your own weed by 420. And that's a much cooler pitch, at least as far as I was concerned, that when I started and was like, okay, I'm going to just try this shit. So, like, that was where it started. and was like, okay, I want to convince, like, two or three people. I really started with convincing my one buddy in California. I was like, if I can teach him, then I can teach more people. And I was like, okay, if I can get him and I can get maybe two others, I can prove this is a group thing and not just one-on-one remote right. coaching. And so that's where this group situation came from was, you know, I've very much valued the accountability and the community aspect when I was on this writing program, even as a writer. And I felt that as a grower, it's one of the things that's very poignant about the traditional market is how lonely you feel. You can't talk about these things openly. You can't ask your neighbor, hey man, yeah, I'm growing yeah. pop for the first time. What's, what do I do? You know, or hey, can you come look at this? It's turning brown. Like that wasn't something that just wasn't a reality. And so now like, I have a dentist, I have a corporate real estate developer, and I have a finance advisor as my three students. And they're in the chat talking with each other about what what's going on and, you know, what are you seeing in your buds or what'd you chop or how did you do this thing? Or, you know, one of the guys tried to do training a little bit harder than the other guys. So they got to see each other's grows, even though one's in Colorado, one's in Illinois, and one's in California they got to kind of have this communal experience to the point where like, even though some of them probably won't do this again, they'll move on to a bigger grow. Um, they have expressed, they're like, can I stay in the discord? Can I hang out and still chat? It's been cool. Like, cause because of the lives they lead, you know, I'm very open on LinkedIn. I'm very open on Twitter. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm fully in the pot game and they're like, I would never dare interact with any of your content on LinkedIn. Like, I love what you're doing. It's so great, but I can't like it. I can't comment. I can't save. I can't share it. Like, you'll never see me post anything about it, but it's so cool. And so like, they, there's a, it's like this privacy without having to be anonymous. You can be yourself. Just, you don't have to be out there where your boss or your coworker might see you on LinkedIn. Like, Oh, Ben, Ben liked a plant. Like I posted a picture where I had my plant growing in my grow tent right next to me. And like, that's not something if he, like my buddy who's a dentist is like, I'm not doing that. Like, that's not going to happen. Sorry. <laughs> you know? So, but it creates this like pseudo, 
private environment where they know that I'm sharing pictures and I'm sharing content and that, you know, that's part of it, but they also don't have to worry about, you know, the engaging with their network in a way that would put them at risk. Right. And it's amazing to me that we, it's so foreign to people. It's like, oh no, I'll, I'll drink a, a half a bottle of scotch every night. And that's completely acceptable. Like God forbid you smoke a joint or something. And then you're just like the devil. I just don't understand. It's like, I would rather talk to a pothead than an alcoholic and not even a pothead, just somebody who smokes pot because they're just calm and down to earth. And every interaction I've had with a person who likes to drink, it's always an angry one. It's like, I've never met an angry person who likes to smoke weed well i mean they're out there but it's like when they're stoned they're just they're calm yeah man that's a that's it's funny you say that it's like i agree and also there is definitely this transition happening in the space and it's there and so how do i there's no other way to say this but like there's definitely some deep-seated anger within the cannabis community and i think it always has been there and i think it's rooted in constantly feeling oppressed by the law or the government or whatever it is so like there's definitely that like the man kind of thing in there um but yeah like you're saying you know it's not the vitriol that you're experiencing from some drunk at the bar it's like let's go to the government and smoke as much pot on their front lawn as possible because them you know so it's like it's like well-placed anger i guess but um but yeah you know and i think to your point also there's this i was talking about this with another person i was working with and this intention or this mindset is that like you drink for social like no most people think they know that drinking is like if you say oh we're going drinking this weekend like that means something different than like let's go have a drink but drinking is seen as a social activity not as an intoxication activity for most people i feel like once you reach a certain age and cannabis hasn't gotten to that maturity level as far as social level where we can look at it as like, oh, they're just going out for a smoke real quick versus like, they're like, oh, they're stoned. They're high. They're, you know, like there's these, there's the extremity to this description that it eventually will get there. And I think part of it is, you know, people need ways that they can consume in moderation and not everybody does or is familiar or even has those options. But as that becomes more of a thing, I think we'll see that trend, you know, will trend it more towards like, oh, we're, they're just going out for a smoke, you know, as opposed to like, oh, they're going to be blitzed when they come back, look at their eyes, you know, kind of treatment. Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying with that. We're, we're trying to flip the narrative on the people who, who think, who just look at it as stoners. And I saw that in the, in the wine industry, they are creating a bunch of cannabis products to go along uh, with the experience of drinking wine, because with wine, you have all the different blends and with weed, you have all the different terpenes and strains. And with each different strain or terpene, or even now, they're coming out with so many different products like topicals, edibles, all the vapes. It's They're turning it into a different industry than, than what people think it's going to be. It's going to be more about getting what you need for your health rather than getting what you need to, to have a good time. Where you know, It's for both. Yeah, I think it's... Like it's something that we've never, we've never had a substance. I mean, and we probably have to a similar to a smaller degree, but to the degree of cannabis where it's been socially demonized. So society has come around to the fact that that might've been incorrect, but they still don't kind of know how to handle it. 
they were cool with medical because that was like, okay, well, we can rationalize this as like, okay, there's a medical benefit. But then when people say, well, it's also okay to just use it to get high, that's very hard for people to wrap their head around because there aren't many things in society that are both treated with a respect like medicine for their medicinal value and also socially acceptable to abuse medicinally but use recreationally you know from a medicinal standpoint you wouldn't use to intoxication from a recreational standpoint using it is for intoxication so that's a very hard thing for a lot of people to reconcile is like i i'm on board with medical like my mom for the longest time was like if i ever got cancer again i would absolutely use cannabis but she's never gonna smoke a joint you know like that's that's not her thing so that perception, I think, has been one of the big obstacles, especially because I think a lot of people who are critical of cannabis looked at medical as a stepping stone, myself included, and as an insincere gesture. While there was valid medical claims and valid medical purposes, I think a lot of people looked at it as like, ah, well, we can get medical first and then we'll go for rec. And like that is how it trended. But it doesn't discount the medicinal value either. But it's the thing, it's like, even some of my friends who use it medicinally, people still judge him. And it's like, well, I would rather him smoke or have a gummy or a drink or whatever, a candy bar, whatever they have infused with THC in it, than take an antidepressant. You see commercials for, for prescription medication all the time. The commercial for the product is 15 seconds long. It's just like, this is what it does. You got a problem like with anxiety, this is what it does. It'll help you. And then two and a half minutes of side effects. Whereas something with THC in it, what are the side effects? It's not going to damage your liver. It's not going to damage your kidneys. It's not going to damage anything. It's going to damage the cabinets because you're going to eat a couple of things. But that's about it. That's the worst case scenario that I have ever experienced or have seen. Yeah, I think... It's interesting because like I, I posted on LinkedIn this week, something that I, it's funny. I took it from Twitter. Twitter was like, oh, that's cool. Like they engaged with it, but like there wasn't any sort of like controversy there. Put it on LinkedIn. Oh boy. Poked, poked the bear. And the prediction is essentially not that flour is going to go away. Flour will always be part of the market mix, but I do not believe in the future. Cannabis flour will be the majority of that market mix. And I think for some of the reasons you're touching on, health-wise, there is this perception of smoking as a negative activity. And regardless of how true that is, the data, whatever, that perception drives activities to the point where cigarette companies started buying vapes and investing in Nicorette and doing things like, you know, like the, we've seen this before. We saw a year-over-year growth in the non-alcoholic beer category of 20%. Like, that's never happened in a single alcohol category in a year in a long time. So for that to be a thing, I mean, it's like, it's probably like when White Claw popped off and they were like, oh my God, alcoholic seltzer. But that trend, as far as conscious health choices with our recreation, I think is going to also be seen in other markets like cannabis, where yes, flour will be there for the connoisseur and for everyone who to this day is smoking, it's probably not going to change your major use. But for 10 years or 15 years from now, your casual wine drinker, your casual beer drinker, your casual tobacco consumer who maybe wouldn't smoke cannabis or has never had a desire to, but their buddy offered him a gummy bear at the bar or they take a capsule or, I mean, like I interviewed somebody uh, in the hemp industry who's working on suppositories and there are former police officers who are using suppositories to treat rectal cancer. 
And like, that is a use case that you would never think of as far as legalization, but it's where we're headed and our, you know, cannabis suppository is going to be the majority of the market. No. But what I think we've seen is that a large majority of the market to date is smokable flour or even inhalable. If you include inhalable, it, de- it definitely gets dicey. But if you look at just combustion market, just pre-rolls and flour, I think that we're going to see a trend away from that being the majority to other inhalables like vapes and you know resins and extracts and things like that, but also consumer packaged goods, which have been largely ignored in the space or kind of treated like that second adopted child that's neglected. Like it's like, oh yeah, we have edibles. They're over here, but we got all this weed. It's amazing. You know, come see this stuff. So it's very flower and smokable focused. And I think if we believe that that's the cap, then the market's not going to grow much. Whereas if we believe that like there is future room for consumers who don't smoke and don't consume any of the product on the market as it stands, then the new product, whatever that is, is probably not going to fit the mold of anything that currently exists, which includes smokables. Yeah, I could kind of see like uh, non-alcoholic beer. It's like you love the flavor of the beer, but you don't like the, you know, you can't have the alcohol for some reason. Um, but if you have THC in it and it's a microbrew and it's got like unique flavors and everything, you, you kind of get a different buzz, a more relaxing buzz. I mean, that could be one of the next big things i i've been drinking a lot of non-alcoholic beers this year specifically because um for the for like you said like i i would like to end the day with a beer or two some days and at the same time i don't want to wake up groggy or i don't want to have that sluggishness even if in the disruption of sleep so like for me now the downside of that is you can kill a six pack and it doesn't matter because you're like oh this is great but you, you know all the calories and all of the beer itself is still there um, but yeah, I, I very much, I'd like that. I think that there are brands that are doing it in a way that it tastes more beery, you know, like even like Lagunitas released an NIPA of their IPA. And so some brands are de-alcoholizing those beers and they're just stripping it. And then some are just not doing, there's no beer involved. Like Hoplark 0.0 is like hop water. It's like the hop seltzer you were talking about. Whereas like Lagunitas being a beer manufacturer, they make the beer and they just strip the alcohol out of it. So that's amazing. Huh. That's really interesting. So do people get non-alcoholic beer because like they were like previously an alcoholic and just want to just want to have a beer still? Or like- I think the trend is away, f- away from the intoxication aspect of it personally. Um, like the people that I know that drink non-alcoholic drinks, they like the social aspect of drinking, but they don't like the intoxication of alcohol. So like... They might be people who also drink weed drinks, but more so that I think, like I have friends who are recovering alcoholics who absolutely, that's why they drink non-alcoholic beer. And I think that's where we all think of like the O'Doul's customer at the bar. You're like, oh, what do you got a problem? You know, and it's, that's that old mentality. Whereas now, like a lot of beers I'm seeing, they'll carry one or two non-alcoholic options, whatever that looks like. Some all the way through, like we did a fine dining dinner for Valentine's that had a 10 course meal paired, meal paired with 10 different, you know, garden cocktails, which essentially were non-alcoholic cocktails that weren't just tears, the mixer and some sugar. Like they were made with the same attention to detail that the cocktail pairings were. And so <laughs> that, you know, I know Colorado is more progressive in certain ways. You're not going to find that in backwoods, Arizona or wherever, but that trend i think is moving in the same way it's not just recovering alcoholics who can't drink alcohol it's people who like drinking but don't want to be drunk yeah 
So this 10 core pairing, was this something you did or you and your wife went to? Like, is this something you created? So we went, there's a restaurant here in Beckett, which I highly recommend. Um, they, they just, they crush it. Denver scene. So I came from Chicago. Chicago has a huge food scene that is starting to come out here. There's definitely a food scene, but like there's no Michelin star restaurants here, for example. And there are some of those things because it's a newer city to the full food culture. So finding some of these restaurants is a challenge. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants was rebel restaurant. They no longer exist. They, you know, they closed, but restaurants like that, they offered kind of that Michelin star meal feel, but in like a punk rock environment. And so it was very cool. And so back in is similar in that they're very elegant, fine dining, it's chef's table, but then they also opened up their partner restaurant, major Tom, which is kind of a fun, you know, more happy hour centric kind of menu versus the chef's table where it's 18 people. We did, it's called the sweetheart moon and they do the full, you know, the full run through with the two and a half hour dinner. And it's, I love it. I'm, you know, when we go out, some people would rather go to a football game or some people would rather spend their money on tickets to whatever, you know, I love dining. I love going to these six, eight, 10 course meals and really being put through this flavor experience of like, this is not something I would have ordered. Like if you handed me a menu, you're like, what did you order these things and these spices? And no, never, but I'm pushing that palate level in the same way. See, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I'm the, I'm that way. I would never try it unless you put it in front of me. If I look at a menu, it's like, yeah, I'll have the chicken fingers. <laughs> I was going to say, I haven't seen Rhode Island as far as personally, so I don't know what your uh, your food scene, but the East Coast in general loves food. Rhode Island has a lot of a lot of good restaurants. People actually come here just for the food sometimes. So There's a restaurant I worked at called Al Forno. I highly recommend you come to Rhode Island, go to Al Forno Restaurant, hands down the greatest restaurant in Rhode Island. They make a, like a wood grilled pizza. It's really thin and they claim to be the inventors of the wood grilled margarita pizza. Okay. I think they just really took it from Italy and brought it to the States and claim to be the inventors, but it's, it's just amazing. Every state seems to be the invention of pizza happened there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to talk about this ship 30 for 30. So what, what's. What started that again? Yeah, yeah. And that led into the the newsletter. So my understanding is like, and this is secondhand, you know, or third hand because I wasn't involved in the starting of it, but um, Dickie was a former trader at BlackRock who wanted to figure out how to kind of get into this daily habit of writing. And so he started studying other writers, started you know, getting into the practice of doing so. And then was like, Hey, I really, you know, I bet there's other people like this. I think he started on Slack and was like, just got as many people as he could onto a Slack. and was like, you guys want to all write for 30 days and try it. They did it. And then it was, then it was like a, you committed like $30 and for every day you wrote, you got your dollar back kind of thing. And then it went up to like a hundred bucks and then like it slowly increased in value with also the resources. Like it, it just started as a fun, like just do this. So that has since led into a program that when we were in it, my fiance and I, we had, there were 750 people in the cohort we were in. And so it's a $750 program or it was then it may have gone up since. Um, and that, what that does is it, you know, you're buying a membership obviously into this 30 day program, but you're getting a lot of education and you're getting those things. 
all of the information in ship 30 is out there like cole and dickie tweet about it they talk about it on podcasts it's through your youtube so like if you are the type of person who has three or four hundred hours to commit to youtubes and podcasts and things like that you could probably save yourself that's $750, you know, like, and they're fully transparent about that. They're like, look, like this information is out there. What you're paying for is the package. Like this is put together in a way that's very easy for you to find it all. And you don't have to go dig through all those, but it's also the community and the accountability they're in. It's like when you're in, a, when you buy the textbook on Amazon versus you go to the class once a week, where, wherever it is at the local library or all the way through college, like that accountability factor of having other people who are going through the same thing as you is a different level of accountability, you know, than just doing it on your own. And not that you can't, but most people won't. And so same with growing. Like today, if you wanted to be a grower, you had to be willing to go at it alone. And my kind of premise is that you shouldn't have to, and it should be super easy for you to fall into that groove. Now, God forbid you don't like growing, you also shouldn't have had to spend a thousand or two thousand or three thousand dollars to figure that out. So, you know, that's the kind of the back end, like, no, I don't want you to like quit, but if you're going to try it, try it in this way because you're spending 500 bucks. And if you, you know, if you buy weed regularly, as privileged as that is to be able to buy weed regularly, you're probably okay with saying, I hit, it took a $500 hit for two months oh, well, you know, maybe you don't buy top shelf. Maybe you buy a budget ounce that month or something like that. But, and I'm not trying to be callous, but if you're someone who has the discretionary income to buy weed, you're already in a different class of person as far as your budgeting for discretionary income. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's actually a really good point. And if you grow even just one plant, I mean, you're going to probably make up what you would have gotten in those three months. So I think I crunched the numbers. If you, if you smoke an eighth a week at like 25 bucks an eighth, 30 bucks an eighth, then it's about neutral. Like, so I just harvested from the two by two for this harvest and I got just under two and a half ounces. So, and then, you know, on the low end, we're seeing about 57 grams. So just over two ounces out of the people who participated. So I think two ounces is a pretty good estimate. Um, but again, like if you're like my first grow one, like was, wasn't ideal. No one's first grow is ideal, but I got PM. Like I, I had powdery mildew and that's something that like sucks when you're 53 days into flower and you've gotten it all this way and you're 10 days from harvest and you're getting excited and all of a sudden you find PM like that's it's you're in a panic because, oh my gosh, like I've been working on this. I've been trying to do this and now it's all for naught. But it's also you're ashamed in a way that like you only know because you've seen other people get publicly shamed. And like you see people post a, a photo either asking for help or they don't know that they have a problem. And you see hundreds of comments that are all like, you don't know what you're doing. Look at that dirty weed. You know, whatever is a this guy's a moldy grower, you know, and so like there's no safe space you know i hate that term but like there's no place where you can safely communicate like hey i'm a first-time grower this is an issue i have i've done everything in my power to prevent this from happening but it happened and i'm not trying to get shamed i'm trying to get help and you know one i focused on ipm like on week three with this group because of that experience i had traumatized me enough that i'm like look you need to know what to do if something pops up 
but you can all you have this group where you're like hey everybody in here is going through the same thing and maybe there's something going on in their plant they don't even know that i'm experiencing so i'm open to sharing it and asking for help and sharing my solutions and things like that and that's not something that we see online in general but in the cannabis community i feel like there's this everyone has their this is the right way to do it and there's a there's a very dogmatic approach to giving advice and with this kind of space it allows one you know like i can say here's what i would do but you have a community of other people who are doing this for the first time who are like oh man I tried this and it ended up working and I can step in and be like, Oh, that's a great thing that it worked, but I wouldn't try that normally. And kind of, you know, like make sure they're not starting bad habits, but at the same time, like there are other things that they may have figured out that I didn't necessarily not figure out, but it was, you know, like I didn't happen to me. So I didn't experience it or know to predict that, or maybe offer advice on that situation. And so there are, constant learning experience throughout this process for me even as a teacher now powdery mildew i grow vegetables and every time i grow pumpkins and i think it's squash the whole plant gets covered in what or i'll see it just on one leaf and then the next day i'll come back and it's on every pumpkin plant uh and every squash plant and it's just this white substance all over everything is that powdery mildew or is that something completely different yeah so melons and like outdoor gardens are super prone to it and the unfortunate truth so zach ricciardi is my good friend and he and i are co-authoring a book together he is the national cannabis specialist for biosafe systems he was brought on because of his cannabis experience when they started working within this legal space and so I have, you know, the benefit of I can call Zach and be like, hey, what the hell is going on with my plan? But even he doesn't answer all my phone calls. He's a busy dude. So when I'm looking for resources and things like that, you know, I'm looking to the things he's created. I always tell people Biosafe has, I think there's 45 videos on their Instagram. They're called the Fireside Chats. It's it's a free class in IPM. It's like 14 hours total. Um but they range from like five minutes to about 30 minutes. And it's it's literally a free class in IPM. Like if you have no basis, you can start there for free. Now, with that said, one of the things Zach tells everyone is PM is everywhere. No matter where you live, there's probably PM spores in your air, in your gardens, in your neighbor's garden, on your tree, on the house plant you bought at Whole Foods, like whatever. Like I've bought chives at the grocery store that came back with, flat, you know, PM. So... It's not something you can avoid, but it is something you can prevent. There is a, it's called the pathogen triangle. And basically you need three things in order for something, whether it's mold or PM or anything else to take hold. And that is obviously you need pest and pathogen pressure. You needed the presence, which if it's there, it's there. But if you don't have a conducive host or a susceptible host and you don't have a conducive environment, it's not going to do anything. It's like if you are a healthy person and you encounter somebody who has a cold the chances of that impacting you are a lot less than if you're a sick person or you are immunocompromised or you're walking around without a shirt on and it's 20 degrees you know like if you're you're causing those additional problems by being susceptible or entering a conducive space so with pm if you can make sure that it's not conducive and you can make sure that your plants are healthy enough to be resistant to that you know, threat, you're going to have a much higher chance of not experiencing problems. Good to know. 
I I'm sorry. I just have a billion questions. I'm having a blast. Like you're yeah. my favorite. This, this is awesome. Well, I love like, this. You are, I did not know it was going to go like this. It was just wow. Um, but the auto flower stuff. Yes. How did that come about? Like, did they? Is that genetic mil- manipulation? Like, when did so that? So it was a. It's it's a genetic trait that's just that evolved over time. Um, the actual nomenclature surrounding what it is. Some people will say it's ruderalis. Some people will say it's just a trait expressed by different varieties of cannabis. With that said, it likely evolved as a survival mechanism. You know, some plants are shorter than others. They don't get as much sun because the plants above them are taking up some of that sunlight. They naturally have to figure out a way to trigger that fruiting, that flowering phase. And so that natural trigger is why you don't need a change in lighting for that plant to go into flower. For an auto flower, you keep it in 20 light or, you know, depending on your schedule, you can do 18, 20, you can even do 24, but I recommend 20 hours of light on four hours off. And in a normal photo period, that's going to be your veg cycle. You, you know, you're running a highlight and then you shut it down to 12, 12 or, you know, 14, 10 or whatever your balance is, but something with an extended darkness period is going to trigger that flower. And that continued darkness period every day is what keeps that plant going. Okay. We're in flower. Let's do this thing. Whereas an auto flower doesn't need that. It's like, once it reaches a certain level, it's like, all right, cool. I've got all the tools needed. I've got the hormones going. Let's, let's do this thing. And so it just goes into flower. And that's great from a lot of perspectives for teaching a new person to grow because you don't have to say, oh, well, you know, well, you can kind of sense when the plant is ready, when this is happening or when that is happening, you know, you don't, you get to see it in real time. Like one of the benefits of an autoflower is this is how it should work. It's like, if you had, you know, if your car was an auto drive, this is how you should go. Now you can do it, but like, this is how it should steer. Um, I liken it to driving an automatic versus a manual. Like if you're not worried about shifting gears, you can figure out how to stay in your lane, how to use your turn signals and do some of those things. And no, you're not as advanced of a driver as somebody who can throw it in gear and, you know, put it on a racetrack, but you're going to understand how to drive a car and you're going to understand, do I like driving? No, not really. Okay, cool. Maybe I should try a motorcycle, you know, or whatever. And that's the whole point is like, if you do this, can you do other things in a two by two? Absolutely. Since I've used my two by two, even with scaling up my whole goal has been like, what can you do in a two by two? Like I made seeds in a two by two last year. I've grown clones in a two by two. Like you can do different things. And the whole point was to prove to people that you don't need a large grow just to try it. So that's been, you know, kind of the the goal is like with an autoflower. Now autoflower quality has gotten to a point where it's, it's not there yet. Like it's not a hundred percent in a photo. But if you've only ever smoked decent weed, and I say that with, you know, love and kindness, like if you've never smoked a 10 out of 10 bud, like you said, like something you would see on a pinup in high times, then your comparison level, it's probably going to be very similar. Whereas like if you're comparing it to the best of the best, obviously there's going to be some differences. So with that said, in the last five years, probably even the last two to three specifically, auto breeding has become a focus of a lot of people, including breeders who were previously only working photo lines. And so they're bringing that quality level from their photo lines, using that recessive auto flowering trait to allow people to kind of grow this photo period quality on an auto flower scale. Yeah. It's actually really interesting when you talk to anyone who's been in the cannabis industry for a while, and especially like 
the older group of people um they when you mention auto flowers you'll you'll almost kind of like you'll see the sneer on their face and it's like yeah and that's how you know that they have not just googled it lately and checked out anything like all the recent companies like you said are are now working to accelerate it and it's like it's almost there it's not there yet but i uh i found it really interesting how like the auto flower industry came about and it it was this thing that was that was absolutely garbage and and just an idea and now you have all these all these different strains and like you said it's like you you just put the seed in you you give it water nutrients and you don't have to worry about flipping your light schedule or anything like that and it it really gets a lot of more people into the industry because of it and yeah, I think that there shouldn't be a stigma behind them at all because they've they've definitely came so far. Yeah, and you know, like I like I tell these new growers, you know, like and I tell I try to manage expectations from the job. Like this is not going to be your best grow. Like no matter what you do, you can think we all come into every new thing, and I've learned this about myself. We come into every new thing, we're like, I'm going to be a savant. Like I didn't know it, but I'm a natural, and I'm just going to crush this, and I'm going to be top. 10% of the world and it's not going to happen. You know, like that's, it's just, it, it happens to all of us. We all fall, you know, we succumb to that belief, but it's like, even with all of the tools and the guidance I'm giving you, this is not going to be your best run. Like it's probably not going to be your second best run. Like you're, you're going to get better over time. And that's also going to show like, I'm, I've been doing this now three and a half years. I've done two full auto runs now or three full auto runs now myself with each of those, my autos got a little bit better. That's going to happen to everyone, you know, like, and so I think that like, I have good friends who are great growers who hold old beliefs, not because for any fault of their own, other than that's how they were trained. The person who trained them when they were growing 30 years ago said, don't fuck with auto flowers. You're going to waste your time. You're going to waste your money. It's swag. And they just inherently are like, oh, I don't know if I want to waste a cycle testing that belief I've held for three decades. I mean, and even feminized, you know, like there's feminized, feminized is like this big misnomer in the space. You know, like you said, the, the traditional crowd seems to hold some weird misconceptions about feminized seeds, like that they're genetically modified and all of these, you know, maybe they're sprayed or I don't, you know, like maybe they were neutered, like we neuter dogs. Like there's all these weird like beliefs that they're like, well, you can't breed with a feminized seed. Well, no, like that's not true. Like, so I think even, you know, like you're saying, like the more open people are to new information and the ability to pivot, that's going to be the difference between whether you enjoy this process of change over the next few decades of cannabis or whether you butt heads and hit every rock on the way down. This is absolutely awesome. So we, we've talked a lot about like cannabis specifically, but um, so I, I don't, I'm not sure if I missed this earlier or not, but have you done most of the work of building up your community or has it been more of like a team effort and you've kind of, you've like hired different people to do different things like make a website or make a newsletter did you kind of do that all on your own so i did that all on my own it's a great question because my process has been it's been varied like i when i moved here i was working with exclusively with two clients one was in the food delivery space in illinois and was a small startup they ended up getting acquired by mr delivery which i believe became delivery.com um i 
was lost long along the way in that. But I was I helped my buddy start that company, and then I was also working with uh, consumer packaged goods company in the detox space. I still help and consult with them, but that allowed me this freedom to kind of experiment and so and be more open about what I was involved in. Like they're a detox company in counterculture. I was going to trade shows where you could buy bongs for half price. I was like, this is amazing. This is like Toys R Us for a stoner. How have I never known about this? Um, but it was like the back end of the smoke shop world that for a long time had also been hidden. And they were very supportive obviously of this space being in the business they were and allowed me to do things. I started a cannabis event company. Uh, I figured, you know, my background is in short, I was was a journalism student. I got two degrees, bachelor's and master's from Mizzou. That gave me also, you know, a marketing background, went into advertising in Chicago. And then when I came out here, I was like, I know how to do marketing. I know how to create logos and write ads and do all of the things necessary to market something. Uh, Let's, let's do events. This will be fun, you know, and there's a much longer story to that. But through that process, I grew my audience online, my Instagram and, you know, things like that. Twitter, I largely stayed off of. I actually grew my Twitter in Chicago when I was a writer with the copywriting scene. But, you know, I've been a member of Twitter since 2008 with a variety of accounts and we come and go, Twitter and I. Um, But Instagram was the thing and that's where cannabis was. And so I was trying to build an audience specifically using, you know, I was a consumer So from that perspective, and it wasn't nearly as intentional as what I'm doing now, but that's where my audience started. And from there, you know, that's like through events, I got sponsors and through sponsors, I met breeders and through breeders, I would get packs because they would donate them to our charity raffle or something like that. And so when I got bored my first night and planted my first seeds, those were seeds that I had been given from a breeder for a charity that, you know, I ended up winning the raffle. The point of that is that through that process, I started doing newsletters for my events. I started doing Facebook marketing until I was banned. I started, you know, like all these different things that like, cause cannabis ads just get immediately flagged. But, um, I built up this to school, this skill set and these tools and kind of an audience through a variety of different pursuits that now as a grower, like when I started my newsletter in 2020 as a grower, it was specifically focused on, okay, these are the life lessons I'm learning as I learn to grow. I'm learning patience. I'm learning time management. I'm learning skills that apply universally that aren't just about growing weed. And that was really what I leaned into. And then at a certain point, there's more you want to talk about and you want to see what the audience is kind of about. There's also this imposter syndrome factor of like, I was approached by a publisher a year and a half ago to write a grow book. And I was kind of like, I'm not the guy. <laughs> like, I just learned to do this shit three years ago. There's people who have been doing this 50, like call, I could tell you who to call. And they're like, no, no, no. We like your style. And I'm like, ah, I just don't think so. And then, you know, fast forward and here we are. But one of the things in ship 30 and in a few other places is the way to beat imposter syndrome is with specificity. <laughs> and so in, ship 30 they talk about the two-year test and this applies both to me as a grower in cannabis but also me as a writer with a newsletter and with social audiences and funnels and automations and things like that is two years ago that version of you would be looking at you and go wow can you teach me how to do that and that's who you're talking to you're not talking to the guy who's been doing it 20 years longer than you because he's either going to know more than you or he's going to think he knows more than you. And either way, that's not your audience. 
And you're more likely to feel like an imposter because you're talking to somebody who knows more than you. Whereas if you're talking to somebody who knows less, you're not taking advantage of that, but you're speaking to someone who was in your shoes. You're like, look, I was you. Let me help you. Like I did a MailChimp automation. I didn't put the one day delay in between every email. So all of a sudden rapid fire, all these emails were being sent out. And so little things like that, you know, like now I would be like, oh man, like if you're setting up a MailChimp, make sure this is the one thing to make sure you do, like make sure you put the delay in there. Otherwise your whole campaign is going to hit their inbox to every two minutes. So little things like that with both the business side and, you know, cannabis, that's how it's it's been built up. And so in the last six months since doing the writing program, I've really tried to focus on what do I know that I didn't know two years ago? And then also what can I learn from people who are further ahead than me? And that's where this teaching others has come into play because, you know, I know generally speaking, temperature and humidity and VPD and how those affect my crop. But if you were as a new grower to go, well, what's the best temperature? What should I, what should I set it at? I don't know. And that's not, you know, like that's me admitting my ignorance. And up until teaching this class, I had to go research and be like, okay, 85 degrees is the best temperature for photosynthetic activity. That doesn't mean it's the best temperature for your whole process. But if you simply are measuring by photosynthetic activity, 85 degrees, I didn't know that two months ago when I started teaching this class. And, you know, you start to learn these gaps where as you're learning, there are things that aren't important. Like, and it's important, you know, temperature, you don't fry your crop, you don't freeze your crop, but you, it's not important for you to know with precision, it has to be this temperature and this temperature. You're just hoping you don't have something crazy happen, you know? And so when you revisit, you're like, wow, that was an area that I could have learned more on or that, you know, and so it's been an opportunity for me to learn in that way, but also expediting their learning curve. So the newsletter, I don't know if we got the answer to your question. Oh, oh, oh the newsletter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now the newsletter, okay. is that a daily newsletter, a weekly newsletter? So it started as a weekly and that's what I tried to stick with. Um, I actually did a, like a, Hey guys, it's been a year or two years now. This is what we've done together. Kind of email, uh, in the last month or two, but, and part of it was for my own benefit because something that I've struggled with is I have 20, just over 2,400, I think it's like 2,440, something like that. subs free subscribers. And then I have I've a much smaller fraction of that. You know, I would say 0. 0.7%, 0. 0.8%, something, you know, like a lot less than 1% are, are paid. And Part of that is because I've, I have constantly struggled to figure out what the difference in value is between the free and the paid other than, okay, well, I'll write you an extra email and you're buying me a coffee. And, you yeah. know, like that's the, been the traditional pitch and was for a long time. You know, people used to have the PayPal button on their podcast. It was like, buy me a coffee. And that was the verbiage that we all use. And what I've found is that like that, that works if you've got a lot of people who like you and don't really care what the content is. And right. if not, even people who like you, if they don't find value, like my friend who's an accountant who's never going to grow weed is not going to, over time, he's going to stop subscribing to my paid newsletter. After maybe the first right. year for a hundred bucks or whatever, he's going to be like, all right, that was fun. Good luck, dude. I don't give a fuck. And yeah. <laughs> so that model's not sustainable. And at the same time, there's this extra burden on me where it's like, okay, I committed to a weekly newsletter. That's awesome. Well, now I've committed to two newsletters every week. So it's twice as much work, all these other things. And so you get into this balance of like monetizing versus reach. 
You know, like for example, I just did that article with the Sunstone Winery uh, with Teddy and Kaylin. That's an article I put a lot more time into than some of these other newsletters that may just come to me or I may know the information and not have to do research and background interviews and all these different things and clear things with press departments and whatever. So in theory, that article should have only gone to the paid subscribers. But I want as many people to see it as possible. And so that's the other thing is it's like, okay, well, so how do I monetize without impeding myself? You know, it's like you look at your Twitter analytics, if you boost your reach or you like, I spent 50 bucks on boosting a tweet, my impression skyrocketed, but my engagement rate didn't skyrocket because not because the content was bad. Like the content had been tested on a small audience. It was very engaging, but at a grand scale, when it's being just broadcast, you're not going to hit that targeted engaged populace. So that's the balance I've struggled with. Where I found myself is I raised the price, I think $2 because Stripe and Substack combined, it's like a 14% cut of your payments. So so there's other options, but that's my current workflow. And so I was like, look, I told everybody, I'm like, you know, next month it's going up two bucks. If you paid for an annual subscription, it doesn't affect you at all, you know, because you're next time you renew, it will affect you, but like you're set. Um, And what you get is essentially you get early access to all the cool stuff I'm working on. So like when I drop Grow Horror, when I drop Hobby Hash, you know about it. And I try to make you, you know, if you want dibs or you want whatever that may look like, you kind of have that advantage because you are supporting me. I also turned on a gated paywall for my archive. So if you don't want to pay, awesome. Make sure you're reading them weekly or whenever they come out. You know, if you're like, man, I'd really love to catch up on the 125 other newsletters that are back here behind this wall. One, you could do a free seven day trial and however much you could read, go for it, you know, but like alternatively like that's where the value comes in like if you're somebody who's like i would like to have access to this for later like i might use this at another point and i don't like that just in case kind of save i think that there's that and then i have an outlandish price i think it's like five thousand dollars for my founding membership because one no one's bought it but two there's the principle behind there's a reason why every starbucks sells a dollar 87 coffee and a 2500 dollars espresso machine because statistically someone will buy the espresso machine once a day and so if somebody finds their way into my corner of the universe and they've got the resources and they're like man i want weekly one-on-one conferences with ben i want his full undivided attention i want access to whatever he's working on that's 100 percent worth it for me I don't want them to be like, he doesn't even have an option for me. I don't want the $7 thing. I'm going to go to the next guy. So that's why that's there. You know, like my time, as far as how I build clients is significantly more valuable than these digital assets. And so if you want that kind of attention, you know, there's a commensurate pricing to that. And I think that's the model that I'm working on figuring out with the grower and with hobby hash and with my newsletter and all of these different things is how do you balance that access with the cost and like ethos is a great example their magazine is only available to people who hold their multi-pass which is their fan club right now it's fifteen hundred dollars to get a multi-pass so and that seeds for life like that was the only pitch they didn't even tell them that that was going to include a magazine we just dropped a magazine on them and this is now the fifth issue but for four or five or six months, you know, however long the timeline is like it, it'll eventually hit the online store and you can buy the leftovers if you're not a member, but like there's an exclusivity there with ship 30, you pay for access. You're in ship 30 for seven fifty. You want to be in the first mate club where you get personalized feedback from Cole and Dickie. It's an extra 1500 bucks. 
You want to then upgrade to the captain's table? Well, that can cost anywhere from 400 to four grand. And so like what you're paying for is not the information, but you're paying for the access to the people. You know, like, do you want to learn how to grow? Cool. Get on the internet. Do you want to learn how to grow with a little bit more of a condensed format in a book? 20 bucks on Amazon. Do you want to grow yep. with a group of people and you already have all the supplies? Maybe it's a hundred bucks. Do you want to grow and you want all of the shit provided for you? Okay. It's 500. You want me to come out and fly to your house and set all this shit up for you? Maybe it's 5,000, you know, and you, you yep. scale it up from there. But the idea is that it's not the information, especially in this time of AI and the, the doing of things that's valuable. It's the thinking and the way of analyzing and the interpretations and the access. So people have an access to this community. They have an access to each other. They have an access to me who like candidly, I try to take one call a week off from LinkedIn or something like that and just try to kind of expand my network, see what's going on and things. But beyond that, like you can't just hit me up on Twitter and be like, Hey man, I smoke an ounce a day. I'd love to chit chat with you. Want to rip bongs on Friday? Like I, I just don't do that. And not that yeah. these people get that access, but like, it's like my good buddy Cole, like I see him often through the ship program because that's where, you know, like he spends a lot of his time. Like, yeah, we're going on a bachelor party and it's going to be awesome. But like the access, if you're not friends with him is you want to interact with, you want the chance to ask questions or get in a hot seat or, you know, I want to talk about specifically what's going on with my plant. Can you put me on stage and like, let's talk through it. Like that's not something that everyone has access to and increasingly so yeah. it will be harder for them. And I mean that in a positive way because like right now I'm trying to get the word out and I'm trying to get as many people growing as possible. Once those growers and that word starts to spread naturally, I'll be pulling back and diving deeper into investing in them so that they amplify their efforts spreading the word, you know? Yeah. You definitely really seem like you have a, a, awesome grasp on everything you you kind of have it all figured out you have a you have a clear view out and oh, i wouldn't say that but years. i'm trying <laughs> no this is the best part about this conversation right now with the newsletter is this past week mitch just started our newsletter some of the things that you were talking about are really helping and we definitely have like we're taking coffee milk to different things and on youtube we're creating different channels and just seeing what works we're throwing darts at a board and seeing what works right now so in three years we may be where you are right you know it's it's funny it's so like on the newsletter front um i started in kind of a, a different way than a lot of people start in that so back in the day, I say that now feeling so dated, but like 2017, LinkedIn used to have a feature where you could export your entire contact list from LinkedIn, including any, and they included anyone who had their emails listed. So it would allow you to kind of, you know, create a CSV and upload it to MailChimp or your CRM software. And there was a very practical use for that. If you're a salesperson, if you, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But there's obviously a lot of privacy concerns there as well, if you can just mass export anyone who's communicating with you. So that said, back when I had like, you know, just my university and work contacts on LinkedIn, I had done those exports periodically. And so when I started my newsletter, I had a variety of different lists from a variety of different projects. You know, they weren't from clients, but they were like, I started this events company and then I was doing this other weed thing. And then I was, you know, like, I, so all of these different lists combined, I started the newsletter with, one, it was like a reconnecting. It was kind of like, hey, some of you I haven't talked to in years. Some of you probably don't know I have your email. 
you know, this is your chance to say, Hey, I didn't want this. Like, here's your, here's why I'm here. Here's what I've been working on since we last talked, so on and so forth. Here's what I'm kind of thinking. And kind of like you're saying, I'm going to be trying shit out and we're going to kind of go from here. And if you like it, awesome. Probably 50% of them unsubscribe from like 5,000, you know? And so like, and since then I've, you know, over three years, my attrition rate has gotten to a point where I maybe lose one or two, but like, it's nowhere near that like drop. And so now I've gotten to a point where my growth in the last six months has started to catch up and outpace, you know, maybe like one subscriber or so a month, but like it's getting there so that it's stabilizing and the open rate is stabilizing. So I think you will get there. Like I was telling, I talked to Money Puff. Um, I don't know if you guys know him, follow him. Um, I was talking to him the other day about what he's doing. He's trying to create a newsletter early stages of cannabis and finance and that intersection. And I said, okay, that's awesome. But for who? And he's like, well, no, any like it's cannabis and it's finance. And I was like, right. But like I, as a 31 year old with a smaller amount of discretionary income and less, you know, or more risk tolerance than somebody who's 65 and is running a mutual fund. Those are different audiences as far as wanting cannabis finance advice. And they're both equally hot. Like I get my parents and my grandparents, everybody's like, where should I put my money in weed? So it's definitely interesting to them, but they're going to want a different piece of advice than a 20 something who, if it crashes and burns, they're like, well, I'll put it all in Doge or whatever, you know, like, so like the, the, I think that that is kind of the same advice I'd offer to you is like, once you kind of see some topics resonating, start to figure out not only what the topics are, but who they're resonating with. Because there's more than just that one person in most cases. And, you know, if you double down and you find that it's just that one guy and he's really loud, then it, you backtrack. What I learned with as trying to build this course and this thing out is that hobbies in general, the first three weeks are the hardest part. You know, the first 21 days of any new skill or whatever you're trying to accomplish, brushing your teeth three times a day or whatever it is, you know, like it, it the first three weeks are the hardest. And you feel the setbacks, you feel the discouragement, you feel all these things. And so that's one where I put a lot of focus in retaining attention for the grower, just in general, regardless of the grow. That was something that I wanted to focus on because I was like, look, they need a reason to keep coming back and be excited about this, even if it's tougher for them in the beginning. Oh, I got a bunch of questions, actually. So how, how many people, uh, so like when you first started out, how long did it take you to get like your first person and like, where have you gotten to today from, from back then? Like, were you like waiting like every couple months, like maybe you'd get one person respond on, on some of your content or like, how, how did that process go? And, and where are you today? How many you have in like the Grovewort program, for example? Yeah. So the Grovewort program right now has three people in it and oh. this is actually the first time I've done it. So okay. it started so in January um, and we are wrapping up on 420. So with that said, I started recruiting in October for it. And that was, I was determined like in this writing program, I was like, okay, if they can do this, I can teach people to grow and not like an expert. I'm not going to teach you how to win the world cup or whatever, but I am going to teach you how to go from seed to harvest because I've done that and I can teach you that. And I had a couple of good friends in different states that were legal. You know, I would say 10, 15 of them that had all expressed a desire to grow, some of whom were more on the fence than others. Um, and I was like, I, my good friend Johnny is in the project and he, I, he was called the Johnny Project initially. And 
John, my goal was like, look, if I can't convince anybody else to do this, I'm just going to buy Johnny a grow and I'm going to force him to grow weed and I'm going to teach him how to do it. And it's going to work. And it luckily, you know, I had other people. Johnny actually was the third of the three to sign on. Uh, he had to convince his wife to let him, which now she's all on board with it, which is really cool. Um, but you know, the process took, I would say it was a short period, shorter than expected. You know, I thought I was going to have to kind of push it a little harder and I only wanted the three seats because I didn't want to overwhelm and try to jump into trying to make money and not knowing if it worked. And, you know, like we had unexpected things happen this time that we learned through it, but they knew they were in the first one. Like this wasn't unexpected. And so if I had had a hundred people or something like that, I hadn't flopped my way through certain things like i would have had to be like look i'm really sorry that like i didn't have this shit prepared whereas like they know this is designed to be small this is the first time and like there's going to be some trial and error here on both of our ends and that's been you know like because i'm not physically seeing these plants like as i said one of the dudes is in colorado he's in denver he's about a 35 45 minute drive but i'm purposely not going to his house like we haven't met up at all for this whole thing because like i and i was going to i was going to like be like oh i could probably go help him and my fiance with jordan was like don't because then you're going to rely on that ability like and you're going to feel like oh man the guy in illinois i can't go help like what do i do you're you need to be comfortable not physically visiting the grow and not physically being there and either talking them through the diagnosis or talking them through whatever they need to do to fix it you know and so that was that was a big learning process and i would say that to piggyback on the whole linkedin conversation one of the troubles that i've reached or that i'm experiencing right now is attracting that newer audience we've gotten two signups so far that have confirmed i've got one guy who's he's trying to work out his payment situation and we've opened i've opened it up for 15 spaces i've got one alumni that i think is going to do it as well they get in for a discounted rate. They still have to buy, you know, like some of the things, but overall it's a discounted rate. But because unlike the writing where like when you're in the ship 30 program, you're writing every day on Twitter and you're writing every day on LinkedIn, like that naturally promotes the course, you know? And so like there's a dual benefit there for the, for the course in that other people are constantly seeing your shit. And so I have them create anonymous Instagram or Twitter accounts just so that I can also help document kind of making sure that they're, you know, when they post pictures, I know what's going on. And now they're posting way more in discord and doing things like that too. But again, it's private. And so like my goal is to try to generate that buzz outside of my community because my community is, is largely cannabis already. You know, they're already in the space, whether they're smokers or they work in the space or the growers, that's not who I'm targeting. I wanted to target the guy who, is a dentist and just moved into his first house and is like, dude, I got an extra bedroom right now. Like, well, I like smoke pot. Let's try this, you know? And like, that's, that's the kind of person I want. And like to narrow it down with specificity further, I was like, okay, if I'm talking to the two year old me, I'm talking to someone who's in their late twenties, who's making a low six figures, who has discretionary income and who can put that discretionary income either to buying weed or who can split it and start trying to grow while they're buying weed. And, you know, they're like, the other thing that was key in this is like, no, you don't have to make a hundred grand or whatever. Like I say, you should make 50 grand to join the program because of the whole 1% of your income, it becomes a discretionary expense, $500. The math works nicely, but it's not just the math and the intuitiveness of that. It has to do with the fact that like, if you experience gnats, 
you, I have to be able to be like, you need to go to the grocery store and you need to buy this thing. And I have to know that you're not going to be like, oh man, you said this was only going to cost four ninety nine, and I spent my last dollar on, and I appreciate that. I empathize with it. I've been there. I get it. But that's hard for me as an instructor to help you when you're already at that disadvantage. And so I need somebody who, if I'm like, you need to go buy a spray bottle, 297 is not going to break the bank for them, you know? And that's like, and it ended up being very real. Like it, it's something where like, when I started growing, I was like, dude, how did you buy a light that expensive? Like I couldn't spend that kind of money on a light. And you start to see those trends and you start to build it up and scale up gradually. But if you want to start without that problem, you have to go into it with the mindset of like, okay, he said 500 bucks, but there's a good chance I'm probably going to spend $50 somewhere in this process because like, like, for example, I was like, look, you guys are adults. I'm not buying you a surge protector. If you don't know where to get a surge protector and you don't know how to get a surge protector and you don't think it's important, that's going to be your decision, you know? Like, and so I try to make everything as easy as possible, but there's some discretion there. Like you're an adult you can figure this stuff out. So is it is it a big issue for you right now where you're getting people who can't really, like you're saying, kind of fully commit and be able to do those those odds and ends like when you get a, a disease in your tent and take care of it? We luckily haven't had that issue. Uh, when I first, when I dropped this in October was when I dropped like the Google form just to see about interest. I had three different levels. And again, this started because I had a buddy who wanted to grow and he was like, what would it cost me? And I was like, oh, let me just build you out three different specs like from Amazon and just see. So I did a budget one. And it was like, how physically, how cheap can I get this thing? And it was like 289. Yeah. I saw you. Yeah. And so then it was like the budget, the moderate and the ball. And the moderate really your investment is in the light. That's where your primary extra spend is because light is real. The quality of your light's going to be the difference like if you're growing with a light bulb you could be in the top of the line soil it doesn't really matter you could have amazing genetics doesn't matter like if you have a shitty light you're getting shitty light to that plant it's having shitty photosynthetic reaction it's not operating properly so that was kind of my pitch was like look like do the moderate setup let's all do it together and since i just removed the other two because it it's too many variables like I just, it's, if you want to do the program, you do the base, you do the moderate with all of us. There is no cheaper version. If you want to do the cheaper version, that's called amazon.com and Google. Um, if you want to do the more expensive version, that's potentially also called that. Or, you know, I'm trying to figure out some of these more advanced options because on the one hand, I'm trying to attract new growers, people who've never grown, but I also want to, you know, keep these growers who are excited about it excited like i like i have had them ask what's next like this is awesome now what and i'm like well you could do it again and they're like mm, okay what else you know and i'm like okay well you know i haven't figured that out yet i'm still building the first plane uh mid-flight and so yeah. that's been a learning process also because i have a wedding later this year like i'm i'm purposefully putting myself in certain sandboxes where like i'm only launching so many things we're only doing two grow hordes this year. I'm doing the January one that we're just finishing and then the June one, which wraps in September because October, November are nuts. And then December is just nuts naturally with holiday season. And so the next one will be January, 2024. Um, by then I hope to have an advanced program that either I will allow, like I'll vet people so that they can get in. And if it's like, like in the same way, when you applied to college, some of you tested out of biology, 
you know, well, maybe you test out of having to go through the growth work. Like you don't need to do the two by two because you do kind of know the basics and we can move on to a four by four or a two by four. And it's actually something I want to talk to a good buddy of mine who's a hobbyist. He, he went to a two by four and I went to a four by four. He likes rectangles. I like squares. I want to talk to him, but, but I love, there's some rationale behind it too, space-wise, power-wise, setup-wise, all the things, you know, as far as setting up this next level, the more space, the more plants, the more variables, right? Immediately. And people want to do photos, which is totally natural. I want to do a photo class with everyone, but it's immediately more variables. It's you have the control over when you flip. Say you don't want to flip this week. You can flip four weeks from now if you want. You don't have to do anything. You can make those choices. And so I want people in that program to be able to make those choices properly and not well, I was on the forums last night before the live session, and this guy was telling me I should flip now because the plant, you know, I, I want, and you know, part of that's controlling the narrative and, you know, you pick one teacher and you listen to them for so much and then you figure out your next teacher and whatever. But part of it is that like the idea is that because this is remote, I have only so much ability to help you if things go wrong. And so in order to do that, I have to anticipate where those things could happen. And obviously molds, mildews, things like that are one of them. Pests yeah. are another. But if you've got 12 plants going into space that really is only fit for six and you're feeding them twice as much as you should be because your buddy said that this new nutrient line was great if you mix it with your old nutrient line, you know, like all of a sudden you have all these problems that I could have fixed if you just followed the instructions and the more, the bigger you get, the more you want to have that custom is and freedom. So that's, what's still in the works. Like in the future, I hope to be able to teach people some more advanced stuff and do maybe not even teach them, maybe just like group grows, you know, kind of as a alumni thing, but being that resource still, I just, I haven't gotten to that point. And like you said, like my focus now is just my, how I'm addressing this problem, as you kind of put it, like the roadblock I've met is like, okay, my audience is X and that's great. Well, two things. One is thank God Elon Musk is now in charge of Twitter because now weed ads are okay. So one, I can do spend on Twitter and that helps with reach. And I, I did, I've always spent $50. I boosted one tweet and it was just a list of, you know, how to start your hobby grow. I didn't even have a link, nothing. Just simply one, because I've done ads so many times on social and had them deleted. I was like, I'm not putting any effort into this. Promote, click, see if it works. Um, but that also, you know, like it helped with impressions. I got more reach than I would have, and it did generate some new followers. So the focus is on how do I get that top of funnel as big as humanly possible? And so right now for me, that is a Twitter growth strategy and then LinkedIn. I'm piggybacking on that strategy and what i've found one is that it seems to be that the obviously there's more professionals on linkedin and there's more consumers on twitter but there's more like the engagement is better on on linkedin from what i'm seeing i'm i'm growing at a faster rate doing the same things and so i'm not growing you know it's not like i grew by one and i grew by ten thousand, but i might have grown by one and then i grew by 20 you know, or so like the, there's a dynamic difference there where in the past few weeks I've grown by, you know, a few hundred followers on LinkedIn, whereas on Twitter I've grown by 50 to 60. And I'm not complaining by any means. I'm a small creator under 2000 on both, 
But I'm noticing that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the algorithms. I don't know. I, you know, I have the blue check. I paid the the thing. We did too, actually. Twitter, we don't know what's going on. It's so hard to get engagement just, just going. With- and they open source the algorithm. So everybody kind of had that great sense, but then they didn't open source the blacklisted document of all the topics. So it's a constant game. And this is, you know, I, I talk about this in ship and I'm probably a broken record because they're their thing is like, look, it's not the algorithm. It's you. It's not, you know, Zuckerberg. It's you're not producing content that's valuable to the people who are seeing it. And therefore the algorithm isn't amplifying it. And I agree to an extent that's right. Like if you've got a hundred people seeing your stuff, even if they see it and they're like, "Mm, I don't really like that. Then whether the algorithm's primed and ready to boost you to a million, if it doesn't get that trigger, it's, it's not going. So I get it. But my counter is, well, if you work in an industry like cannabis or to even compare further, porn is often the comparison for SEO. So if you are in the porn space, you have to optimize for SEO. You're a digital web company, but you are actively penalized. Like you don't get suggested terms and you don't get AdWords and you don't get pay drink and you don't get all these things. And I've never worked with a porn client, but when the ad industry started talking about cannabis, they started talking about in the frame of Pornhub because Pornhub had just done the Super Bowl. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. I was just going to ask you about SEO and your website and if you've been trying to post any any just about regular articles and like ranking for certain keywords. Yeah. So that's, you know, so that's to, to liken it without saying, you know, hey, all cannabis is the same, but in a lot of ways you're optimizing for platforms that are actively penalizing. And so it's a, it's a, it's a minefield game, but it's also, you know, you're playing within, okay, so they're limiting me. I can't talk to more people unless I get the people I'm talking to, to like me. Okay. Well, if I've got 10 people, I need them all to be screaming my name. And then I get 11. Awesome. Let's get 11 screaming. And you're playing this hindered handicapped game, but you're doing it to the best of your ability. And so, you know, with SEO, I don't focus on SEO anymore. And that's like a totally, probably not the most popular viewpoint from some perspectives, but my my focus is on, like, I, I guess I should backtrack. I focus on SEO to the standpoint of when I'm doing an initial ideation, I'm checking to see if people are talking about it because I want to see if there's if there's conversation about it and what is being said. You know, I don't want to say the same thing everyone's saying because that's not going to help me SEO or in general, just optimizing. I want to be kind of in my own lane. So if I, like, for example, one of the best ways for me is GoDaddy. Just go, if the URL of whatever you're thinking of is available, it probably hasn't been thought of yet. Where it like, literally, you know, there's people buy all the URLs for a million things. If they haven't, there's a good chance you're onto something. So that's like number one. Number two being, you know, Google started indexing tweets. I know that that may or may not impact SEO depending on who you talk to. But if you're regularly talking about the stuff, if you think of every tweet as a page on the internet in the same way you think of an article or a blog post, if you can make those tweets valuable and relevant so that people are relinking them, AKA retweeting them, it's a similar kind of like link building process. Like you're thinking about it from the standpoint of like, how do I get these connections regardless of what medium it's on per se, so that when you go to Google and you type Ben Owens hobby grower, and I haven't done this, I don't know. I'm probably, I don't know if I rank, but like, I know that hobby I grower, for example, today. You do read. Oh, well, that's cool. <laughs> well, so like 
But when I went to GoDaddy and I went to go buy HobbyRower.com, they wanted like 10 grand for it. You know, someone clearly was like, this is a, a thing. And it's if you search hobby growing, just basically, you're going to get a wide variety of things. Some weed, some you want to grow ficus, you know, and like that's the full bandwidth. Like some people consider hobby growing to be houseplants. And so using that verbiage, yeah. I'm trying to get it to the point where like, like I have friends who are growers who were like, I don't, they called themselves home growers and now they call themselves hobby growers. And it wasn't me saying like, Hey, you should call yourselves this. They're like, that sums up what I am better than the way I was describing it. And so if I can use that terminology or I can use, you know, whatever you said. And so this kind of goes back to linking is like creating content partially serves the purpose of not having to explain yourself over and over and over. You're like, it's not this boom, here's the link. I wrote about this last week, 500 words. You'll understand what I'm talking about in a minute, you know, and like it serves that purpose. But if other people start doing that, you're getting those links and whether they're sharing your tweets or your LinkedIn posts, or, you know, like to me, like I would rather focus on getting reposts on one of those two platforms than on getting links to my website. So, you know, like for example, I was actually in a, featured in a high times article a couple of days ago, commenting on cannabis culture. And the author, who's a friend of mine, you know, he's a writer, he reached out, he just credited me as, you know, one of my many things that I've done, which is totally accurate and totally fine. Whereas if like you had asked me five years ago, I probably would have provided him with a list of like, hey, can you link to this page specifically with this query? And can you do it on these two words so that like, and this time it was just like, oh, cool. He ended up linking to my page. That's cool. Like. I, that's awesome. You know, like, and so it's that change in perspective for me may not be universal, but like my focus has been like, where can I put my content? How can I put it everywhere? And how can I make sure that that content is valuable to the point where other people are using it to either explain how they feel or educate people on things they should know. Right. And like, that's my link building, I guess. So a much more like holistic approach. You're not, you're not really just hacking methods you're talking about content yeah like all i can i yeah like i would say that with the ai platforms now and the ability to like you know i can write a headline and i can put it into chat gpt and i could say this is the headline i wrote give me 30 different versions and then you know maybe i go and look at like answer the people or answer the public and like pull okay this is there's some overlap here and i might like i casually seo but like it's it's definitely not in the way where like when I first started writing in weed, it was like, okay, we need to have four links above the fold. We need to have three links yeah. below the fold. We need to be targeting these three publications to try to get them to, re you know, like there was a very calculated formulaic approach to, a, to content. We need a keyword, every other word in the headline, you know, like there were specific styles that you followed. And that was like, you know, if you did it right, you hit that nail definitely not to that level like now it's like does it fit within my category are other people talking about it do i have something different or valuable to add to the conversation and if not and this is where i struggle because to me a lot of what's done for growth hacking nowadays is borderline spammy like they're on you know the social platforms you got to be the first person to reply and all those things and so yes it works like the tweets where I reply to Wiz Khalifa get 5,000 views and, you know, like I put hours into a thread and it gets 500. And so I, I see it, it works without question, you know, 
do I get quality followers mm, to be seen out of every thousand impressions? I typically get one or two new followers where I'm applying to these big accounts, you know, like not your niche accounts, but like when you're targeting somebody with millions of followers, like I just need to be seen. And that gets spammy quickly. People just commenting emojis and people just being like, Hey, check out my page. And so my yeah, kind of, I've, I've been doing, yeah. And so my line in the sand is like, they say when you're replying to these people, yes, you want to be first and yes, it's timely and all those things. But if you can hit all those marks, your goal is to have a conversation with the person posting it. Your goal is not to have a conversation with their audience because you're, you want them to engage. You either want to add value to the conversation or call into question what they're saying or do something to that effect where they respond and you kind of get this back and forth. And that has the benefit of networking in the traditional sense and having a conversation. And But it also has the dual benefit of you're getting engagement from the original poster, which is going to drive traffic to those tweets, which is going to drive views, so on and so forth. Yeah. When I first started getting all into all of this, I... I I honestly, I kind of easily lost sight that it's 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 just a person talking to another person. You don't have to worry about all the metrics and just try and make all the metrics work. If you just focus on having human connection through a different uh, uh, medium, then all of the metrics and things that you're supposed to do, like SEO, are going to just naturally follow. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you know, if you get it all right from a technical standpoint, you still have to have the value there. Like, yeah, you, exactly. Knowing all of the great things, you, if you're not saying anything, doesn't, yeah, doesn't I've really clearly, matter. I've clearly seen that just doing like the posting on, like you say, like, like accounts with a large audience. If you're just posting, like I, I've done it personally, if you just post trying to, with the thought in your mind that, oh my gosh, so many people are going to see this, like, you're not going to get anything. Well, and it's, it's like Wiz is a perfect example. Wiz, so there's an account on Twitter that was talking shit on Wiz's weed because it's produced by True Leaf. He decided to retweet the troll and clap back and was like, it's actually pretty fire. And of course, it's Wiz Khalifa. Like he's got a few million followers. He got like 4 million views on the tweet. The account in question only went up by like 30 followers. And so... It just goes to show you that like not just because you're getting seen doesn't mean that you're attracting people who are like, oh, I value that guy's whatever. And so, yeah. you know, there's the other extreme, which is Steph Smith. She's a, a Twitter person, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. Love Steph. She follows 99 people. That's her hard limit. And if you, if you, for example, if there's somebody in there she gets finance advice from and she wants to follow somebody else that's a finance person, she it's a replacement. It's okay. Who's, who's going to tell me? more insight who's going to add more value to my timeline and then they're gone and i'm sure that you know there are people who would say that's an extreme but the premise is like it's impossible to get value from and keep up with hundreds or thousands of people like it, it's just not conscionable it's like trying to have a thousand friends and you could be okay of a friend to a, a group but you're going to be a great friend to a smaller amount in the same way. Like you're going to get a lot more value and pay a lot more attention to a small amount of people than trying to listen to every writing coach in the world. You pay attention to Cole and Dickie, you know, so on and so forth. And so I think it's an extreme and I don't think that everyone is as protective of their follower ratio, so to speak, as people once were, but I do keep that top of mind. Like if I approach every Con not every content, but if I approach my strategy from a higher level as my goal is to work my way and win my way into people's lists so that they find value in what I'm saying, 
that hopefully has a resonance factor that's much stronger than they thought my meme was super awesome or I got retweeted by X account with 300,000 followers. We're almost up on our limit right now. We were, yeah. <laughs> we said it at two hours. This is the first time we're using Riverside FM, so we didn't know if we were going to really like this or if we should go to Zoom or something. If you guys like this, if your audience responds to it, you know, I'm always down to stay in touch, maybe come back in the future and we can chat more about different things. Um, you know, and, and we'll, I'll be further along with the grow horde at that point too. Maybe circle back, see how things are growing. Um, whether it's this year, or, you know, in, in 2024, when it kicks off again. Oh God. Yeah. I know. I would, I would love to have you on. You were just, this was awesome. Yeah, definitely a great episode. Um, what's the best place for people to reach you, reach you at, uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, plug whatever you want. Awesome. Yeah. I am, uh, at cannabinoid with an E instead of an I. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, on LinkedIn, I am Hobby Grower, uh, the backslash in slash Hobby Grower. Uh, you can find me at startahobbygrow.com, growhort.co, or hobbyhash.com. Rock on. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This was the yeah. greatest interview, and I was actually really nervous about it because it's the first interview that's not a friend. Like, we don't know each other, yeah. but this turned out great. <laughs> Yeah, turned out great. Thank you so much for coming on. I no, this yeah. has been a lot of fun. I love shooting the shit, uh, just about just like the regular cannabis stuff, and then like some of the a little bit more technical stuff about like building the audience and stuff like that. It was really fun. So, yeah, and definitely would love to uh, have you on again in the future and and see where where you are then. Yeah, same. So I'll uh, follow you guys on Twitter, Coffee Milk guys, and uh, you're coffee milk pod on instagram right yep that's yes. awesome well uh make sure you follow them as well <laughs> God, yeah, yeah i'll talk to you guys too man it's been awesome stay in touch online and uh yeah we'll circle back here in the future sounds right. great yeah, you awesome. have a wonderful weekend yeah great talking to you all right you too okay talk soon all right goodbye have a good one well that's it for this week's episode of coffee milk i'm mark laporte i'm mitch DePaulo. see you next week